Hello and welcome to The Personal Investor. I'm Ed Monk. Today on the show, it's a quarterly investment outlook special where we put your questions to the Outlook's author, Tom Stevenson. Inflation, the prospects for a stock market recovery and a new prime minister all featured high in the thoughts of Fidelity investors. And that's our focus today. If you enjoy the show, please rate us, share us or leave a comment wherever you get your podcasts. Each quarter, Fidelity publishes its investment outlook, a snapshot of the market's landscape that rounds up the issues on the minds of investors. An invaluable part of that is the questions that we invite you to submit to us, and in particular to the Outlook's author, Tom Stevenson. Tom and I have answered some of those questions in a special video that accompanies the Outlook. You can find that, as well as the Outlook itself, at the Markets and Insights section of our website at fidelity.co.uk. The podcast this week takes on even more of those questions, and Tom is here with me to do that. Tom, welcome along. Um, Before we get into the questions, can we have a word on the past few months in markets? It's been an interesting time, actually. The last time we did one of these was back in April, when we were digesting the outbreak of the war in Ukraine, of course, and wondering how high inflation would go. What's exactly changed since then? Yes, well, it's been a very difficult time in the market since we last spoke uh, in April. The first half of the year as a whole, actually, was uh, was the the worst first six months of a year since 1970. So it was pretty trying time for investors. And a lot of the uh, uh, the pain was actually felt in that second quarter uh, since April. Principally, what's changed is that inflation has continued to rise. Uh, Central banks have made it clear that they intend to get on top of inflation by raising uh, interest rates in order to bring prices uh, under control. And that has had uh, the impact on markets that, that you would expect. Investors do not like rising interest rates. So that is, that's the principal story of the, the second quarter of the year. Okay. Okay. Well, Tom, we're going to get into some of the uh, the questions that we've been sent in. So let's uh, get underway. The first one is this. What are your thoughts, Tom, on the possibility of a UK and US recession? And what impact do you think this will have on global equity markets? So are we heading into recession, Tom? And what's the effect going to be? Uh, I think we probably are heading into recession uh, on both sides of the uh, Atlantic. Uh, and it's really related to what I've just been talking about. Um, inflation uh, has uh, emerged as a, as a as a major issue. Uh, central banks are raising interest rates in order to um, uh, get on top of uh, inflation. But the consequence of that, unfortunately, is that uh, we are likely to see a significant economic slowdown as a consequence of rising interest rates. The question is whether we end up with a rather mild recession uh, that has already been priced into markets or whether we end up with something rather deeper which causes uh, an earnings uh, decline, a corporate earnings decline. That I think is probably not priced into markets. So I think that's the key question. A mild recession, I think we're probably there in terms of valuations. A deeper recession, we may not be. Yeah, and, and actually, you know, we're here to discuss in part your your outlook. And one of the points you make in the outlook is this comparison that can be made with previous bear markets. And that's what we've seen this year. Um, you make the point in the outlook that when those bear markets uh, are accompanied by economic uh, slowdown and a slowdown in earnings, you, you can get a, a much bigger, much more significant drop from from 
from what we've seen so far, right, in markets? Yeah, I mean, just to put some numbers on that, Ed, uh, you know, the, the history books suggest that over the long run, the average fall uh, in the market when you have a, a bear market that's associated with a recession and a decline in, in corporate earnings is something like 35%. When you have a, a, a milder form of bear market, one that's really just about sort of, you know, blowing away some of the froth is is, is how, how I expressed it, you know, just getting rid of valuations that have gone too far, but it's not associated with a recession and an earnings decline, then the average fall is around 22%. Now, that's not a million miles away from what we experienced in the first half of the year. The S&P 500 was down 21% in that first six monthly period. So that's why I think I, I framed it in that way that, you know, if earnings can hold up, uh, then we've probably had the valuation reset that we need. If earnings don't hold up, then maybe markets are going a bit further to fall. Well, that's a that's a, a big, big question for the weeks and the months ahead, Tom. Um, let's move on for now to our second question. Uh, two questions in one here, actually, but I'll I'll allow it. Um, they are. I have two questions, Tom. One: How are bank stocks expected to behave in a recession? And two: Have tech stocks seen their bottom now? Um, two different sectors, and, and not totally unrelated in relation to this question i think yes absolutely um and you know the, the the link between the two is is interest rates so if we look at the bank stocks first of all i mean a recession is is bad news for uh for the financial sector uh for a couple of reasons uh the first is that uh if there's a slowdown in the economy uh and companies start to perform less well because of that slowdown then the risk of banks um, being exposed to bad loans on their lending books uh, is increased. So a recession is not good news for um, for, for banks, and it's not just the corporate sector. Actually, it's also in the in the household sector as well. If people have less money, then they're more likely to run into difficulties with their mortgages, for example. Um, so recession not good uh, for banks, and the the interest rate uh, point here is that as interest rates rise, that tends to be good news for banks because it enables them to widen the margin between. Uh, the level at which they're lending money and the level at which they are effectively borrowing uh, money. And that the gap between the two is, if, is, is where a bank makes its profits. So rising interest rates tend to be good news for banks. If we have a recession, then the chances are that interest rates are going to fall again. So that is going to squeeze that margin for banks. So that's the bank question. Tech stocks also related to, to interest rates um, uh, because... Tech stocks have fallen a long way in the in the first six months of this year. And one of the reasons why they've fallen a long way is because interest rates have been rising. Interest rate, uh, rising interest rates are bad news for technology stocks because interest rates feed into the calculation of the value today of all the future profits of those uh, high growth companies, technology stocks in particular. If you're using a high interest rate in that calculation, then the present day value of those stocks is lower. And that's why tech stocks have tended to fall in the first six months of the year. So I think, you know, if we if we get uh a recession and interest rates start to come down, um, then that might actually, ironically, be quite good for tech stocks because they're probably still able to deliver good growth in, in, in revenues. Their valuations will probably increase as interest rates fall. So I think um, I, I think the impact could be different for the bank stocks and the technology stocks, almost the mirror image of each other. 
Right, right. Yeah, and just on that point about the banks, Tom, um, yeah, what, what you say, I guess, is true about the, the, them in a recession, you know, bad loans can rise. One of the things that's a feature of this current period is is that we're slowing down as, as a global economy, but um, certainly in, in, in the UK and, and I guess in, in the US as well, there, there isn't huge jumps in unemployment yet you know i mean obviously things can can change but we have a, t- a very very t- tight labor market in the uk and that that suggests that um there should be some resilience uh in terms of the willingness of consumers to go out and spend for example if they if they can stay in their jobs and and so that that's a that's an element in this whole situation isn't it that that one recession is not exactly the same as another. Yeah, that's a very good point. And in fact, we've seen that uh, today. There were some figures on the housing market today which showed that house prices have risen by 11% over the past 12 months. And one of the reasons that's being cited as uh, as a support for the housing market is that the jobs market remains strong. Uh, if people are uh, confident that they will remain in employment, then they're going to be much more um, uh, likely to be willing to go out and um, spend money o- on a house, and it does support the housing market. So I, I think that you know the 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 strength of the jobs market, uh, how long that can hold up, is absolutely crucial to how deep or shallow the recession turns out to be. Okay, okay. Well, let's move on for now, Tom. Uh, the next question is this: Gold has been disappointing so far this year, and the funds have not performed well. What is your view on funds that are focused on gold? in the next 12 months? Is it still a valuable investment to hold? So, Tom, what's the answer? Yes, I mean, gold has been a, a disappointment. And, and I put my hand up here because I I, um, I actually got this wrong at the beginning of the year. I rather thought that gold would uh, act as, uh, as something of a hedge against uh, uh, rising prices in an inflationary environment. We haven't seen that. Um, I I think one of the reasons, well, I think there are a couple of reasons why gold has not performed well. I think um, uh, as interest rates have risen uh, generally, um, investors have become wary of the opportunity cost of holding uh, an investment, gold, which doesn't pay an income. So as interest rates go up and you can can get a, a reasonable income from uh, other assets like, for example, government bonds or, or, or shares, then you're less inclined to park your money in an asset which doesn't pay you an income. The other reason I think why gold has not performed uh, so well is that the dollar has been very strong and gold is priced in uh, dollars. As the dollar rises, gold becomes more expensive for buyers of gold in other uh, countries other in other currencies um, and that tends to have a depressing uh, impact on the price of gold so I think rising interest rates and the strength of the dollar uh, have provided a bit of a headwind for, for gold now I, I think it's possibly not the right way to look at gold actually as an investment I think one of the th- one of the important uh, ways to look at gold is as a kind of insurance policy against things not going well because it it tends not to be very highly correlated with the performance of other asset classes it moves to a it marches to a different drumbeat uh, if you like it's a good thing to hold in a portfolio in a you know in a relatively small um, percentage of your portfolio probably but it's a good thing to have because it does provide that lack of correlation that insurance policy yeah I was going to make the same point on on, on gold I, I think it's always the way that there, there are there are some investors out there that will 
um, move quite quite uh, you know forcefully into gold at, at, at different times, hoping for a big turnaround. And it's just it's just not that predictable. It, you know the conditions under which gold performs well. Uh, they're very, very, very changeable, and it's and, and hard to predict. Um, but then there are these pockets when it can prove itself, and and I think if you're going to hold gold, gold as a sort of diversifier in your portfolio, I guess you have to factor in there's going to be periods when it just doesn't doesn't do well, um, and that's sort of part of the deal. Yeah, it's a long term. It's a long term investment. You should just you should just hold it there and and kind of forget about it. I think. Okay. Okay. Well, let's move on for now, Tom. Uh, the next question. Hi, Tom. It seems that many respected actively managed funds have significantly underperformed their respective indices so far this year. What do you make of this in general? And does it mean that for the ordinary non-expert investor, index funds or tracker funds are a more reliable and less risky choice? So what do you make of that? Yeah, that's a very interesting uh, question. And I think to an extent, it's true. I think that uh, actively managed funds have been uh, a bit of a disappointment. And I think there's a good reason for it. And the the reason is that that markets have been driven by quite a narrow leadership. So uh, in in recent years, we've seen uh, markets, especially the US market, really driven by the um, technology stocks uh, and a very relatively small number of technology stocks. What that has meant is that if you were not exposed to that particular corner of the market, you would have really struggled to uh, to to keep up with the with the market index as a whole and more recently we've seen, we've we've seen something similar actually with the um with the way in which markets have been driven by um oil and gas companies and you know less so very recently but certainly a few months ago by the by the miners by the commodity stocks and again if you were not exposed to those two sectors, then you would have really struggled to keep up with an index like the FTSE 100, which is very heavily dominated by those by those kinds of uh, stocks. So I think it's it's the narrow leadership which has meant uh, it's been difficult for for investors to keep up with the indices. Yeah, and, and this question never truly goes away, does it? You know, the, the the active versus passive question. Active funds are more expensive, is is in general. I'll I'll generalise, but in general they are, and that's going to put them at a disadvantage and always put them under scrutiny. Um, in terms of their performance versus index funds, if you're going to if you're going to go for active funds, that's an extra risk, I suppose, that you're taking. You're taking the risk of what the markets in general will do, and the risk that your particular chosen funds is going to be able to, you know, outperform the market. And as you say, Tom, for all the reasons that uh, you lay out, it's been it's been hard. It doesn't have to be either or, does it? And and you know, I I, I hold both, and and I think that actually. Um, Index funds, tracking funds, probably are the the correct or, or an appropriate choice for many, many, many people. Um, but you still might have space for active around the edges. That's certainly how I do my investing. And you know, they've they've asked the question about whether it's more reliable or less risky. Um, there's, I I think it's a bit dangerous to think about it as less risky. You know, the market is making a decision, or indices are, are effectively making decisions about. Uh, the, for, the the fortunes of companies as our active managers. There's risk on on both sides of that equation, but we should always, you know, take the point that active funds can struggle from time to time. Yes, and I think you know uh, you make some good points there. I think that the that there are different kinds of risks between uh, active and, and 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 passive funds. One of the risks 
which is not always really focused on with with passive funds is that especially ones which are um, uh, determined by or the weighting within those passive funds is is market cap related uh, is size related is that they do tend to push you into the more expensive and the and and the the bigger stocks and so you know the classic example of this is that at the top of the the dot com bubble in in two thousand passive funds would have been you know very uh, heavily exposed to technology stocks and, and I suppose more recently in the U S the you know the the importance of that handful of technology stocks would have meant that an S and P five hundred tracker fund was essentially a bet on those um, technology stocks. So you're getting a different kind of risk uh, with a passive fund. It's not less risky overall. Indeed, indeed. OK, well, let's move on for, for now, Tom. And uh, a question actually, which is, uh, yeah, I, I, this, is, this is a question that I sometimes ask as well. Why have, Tom, inflation-linked gilts taken such a hit? Are they not a hedge against inflation? It's a good question. It is a very good question. And I think one of the one of the issues with inflation linked gilts is the name. I think that because people see that they're called inflation linked gilts, the assumption is that they eliminate all the inflation risks from from investing uh, in gilts, uh, UK government bonds, in other words. Um, the reality is that um, the, the the amount of capital that you get back at the at maturity and the amount of income is related there is a link with the inflation uh, rate but it, it, it that's not the whole story the fact of the matter is that an inflation linked guilt is still a bond and so in an environment of rising interest rates uh, it is going to be hit by exactly the same uh, factors as any other type of bond fund. Rising interest rates are generally bad news for uh, the value uh, of um, of bond funds. And so with inflation linked guilt, you've got a couple of things working at the same time, not necessarily working in the same way. And I think that investors buy them because they focus on the inflation linked element. They They maybe forget that this is basically a bond fund. And it will uh, be affected in the same way as other bond funds. Yeah, and forgive my ignorance. So, is is it the case, Tom, that that whilst yeah, the income that uh, an inflation-linked bond will pay um, will be influenced by by inflation? Inflation there, there is a link there to it, as you say, but they have a price as well, and and uh, or the, the the capital they return will still be eroded by inflation, and so they can still move, and they do move actually. You know, they correlate to what the wider bond market is doing. Yeah, absolutely. They are influenced by by the same forces as as other bond funds. As interest rates rise, uh, then the, the 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 yield on the bond on the on the on the on the bond fund will also rise. And as we know, yields and prices move in opposite directions. So that will be a hit to the capital value of the of the bond. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Well, let's move on, Tom. And uh, this is a question that actually reflected many that we that we got. We we obviously don't answer or ask the same question over and over in these in these things but um i could have picked five or six with basically the same question and it, it is this advice at the time of a downturn is inevitably to do nothing i've watched very large sums disappear over the past year and would like to know is there ever a point when investments should just be withdrawn and waited and you wait to reinvest when the climate is better so Lots of people are having the same feeling here. What's the answer, Tom? Yeah, well, I mean, the answer is yes, of course. There are times when the sensible thing to do is to take your money out of the market, wait for the market to fall and reinvest at a lower point. Unfortunately, it's impossible to do that without the benefit of hindsight. And as investors, we don't have the benefit of hindsight. So at any given point, we don't know 
what the future is going to hold uh, for the market, what the direction of travel is going to be for the market. So uh, it's a it's a kind of notional, hypothetical argument, really. Yes, the, the answer is yes, there is. But you don't know in <laughs> practice, you're never going to be able to do it. No, that's right. And a couple of things jumped out at me reading this, this question. One was uh, they've explained that they've watched very large sums disappear over the past year. Um, I wonder what their paper gains were in the in the two years preceding that um that would be one that would be one question they you always need context when you're looking at what your your investments have just done mm. um and is there ever a point where investments should be withdrawn well i i would say that's less a markets question that's a that's a you question that's a that's a you know is it is it the right thing for you has your attitude changed have you become um or, or have losses reached a level where you, you now can't afford or simply can't stomach any more in which case yeah sure you know withdraw it that that's it's still important to be comfortable with the exposures that you have it does of course mean that you potentially lock in the losses you, that you've had it could work out as well it could be a great time to have done that but if you're going to wait to reinvest as this questioner um, suggests they might do you've got you've then got to decide when the when the climate is better as they describe it you've got to decide when that's a good moment and and that's another difficult moment to time correctly. Absolutely. I mean, you're, what you're what you're asking of yourself is the ability to make two decisions correctly: one, when to sell, and two, when to buy back in again. And both of those decisions are very hard to make. And the chances are that you know we will not get both of them right. In fact, I think the chances are that we'll get both of them slightly wrong um that's the the evidence points that way so you know and that's why we always encourage people to really to 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 invest through the cycle and to and to to sit things sit things out uh, and uh, and invest on a long enough time scale that you can afford to do that yeah and, and also i'll make another point here that uh, that very often people have this sort of fantasy they say oh you know i'll, I'll look you look back at charts i mean I'm, I'm guilty of this you look back at charts and say wouldn't it have been lovely to have you know bought then and then sold out then you know been very precise about it and what you sort of daydream about making these wonderfully timed decisions <laughs> what people tend not to focus on is the moments when you say, well, actually, the market was really depressed then. That would have been a great time to invest. You know, that would have been a really good time to actually put money in, mm -hmm. even though we all know logically that that's how, um, you know, successful investing works. You know, you buy low and sell high. Yep. And so these moments when it's difficult and markets are depressed probably are quite good moments to buy, but but that's not often how we see it. I'll just give you a really, a really nice sort of example of this. I was, um, I was looking this morning at a company called Pinterest, uh, which is a kind of social media uh, company uh, which many people will be familiar with. Of uh, its shares shot up during the, the the lockdown because people were at home and they were looking at their their screens a lot and and you know maybe starting hobbies that they hadn't had before. Uh, the shares have have collapsed in the meantime, and uh, a, a, a well known activist investor has bought into those shares, um, and. Time will tell whether that's a fantastic uh, opportunity to buy a share after they've fallen by 75% of their value or whether actually um, they got it wrong. And at the time, you don't know. And this activist investor doesn't know. But that is the, that's the bold decision that they've taken to take a 9% stake in this company. And only time will tell whether it, whether it works out. It's difficult. It is. It is. Okay. Well, Tom, the next question is short and sweet. It is this. Will emerging markets improve in the near future? Yeah. Short and sweet question. I think the, the answer is uh, slightly trickier, but I'll try and be, try and be brief. 
emerging markets is is a is an area which is difficult to generalize about because there's so many different types of emerging markets it includes china it includes commodity exporting countries like uh brazil uh south africa for example it includes um countries like uh taiwan and korea which are essentially you know high tech exporters they all face very different uh questions uh at the moment some of those um uh technology exporters are struggling a bit because the global economy is slowing down some of the commodity exporters have done well they're doing less well because commodity prices um have fallen back so i think it's quite difficult to generalize uh, about uh, emerging markets uh, at the moment okay okay well uh here's a, a more personal question actually tom uh, the question asked this i have started a trust for my granddaughter currently the funds are invested in a multi-asset fund which has been performing badly recently i'm considering moving the assets into a trust like scottish mortgage or alliance trust which is global in nature and covers most investment styles i would be interested in hearing your views and they add my granddaughter is two years old so uh, a few things to unpack there Tom, so uh, away you go. Mm. Okay, well, I mean, multi multi asset funds, I think, are generally a good idea because they put your eggs in lots of different baskets, and they, in theory, give you a smoother ride. The reality of multi asset funds is they're quite difficult funds to manage because if you think about, you know, a, an investor, they have a an area of expertise. They may be very good at investing in, you know, small shares, or they may be uh, good at investing in government bonds, for example. You're asking a multi asset investor to have some knowledge about lots of different types of investments, and you know maybe that's a maybe that's too much of an ask uh, and maybe that's why uh, for quite often multi asset funds don't perform particularly well the second part of the question is interesting though because the 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 the, the funds uh, or indeed both of them are investment trusts that this uh, investor is considering moving into i would suggest they now maybe it's maybe that would be a good move but i think it would certainly be a riskier move because um, you know, let, let's look at the Scottish Mortgage uh, Trust uh, as an example. That is a trust which is heavily exposed to the technology stocks that we've been talking about. It performed very well. It's performed less well in recent uh, months. So actually deciding to put your money into a trust like that is actually taking on, a, again, a different type of risk from the multi-asset fund. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, the, the, the part of the question that uh, immediately jumped out at me, Tom, was, was when they said my granddaughter is two. Yeah, good point. And that means um, the, the, the if this genuinely is, is sort of her money and that she can access it much later in her life, she has a very, very long time horizon to wait um, until, until she can, you know, will, will need the money potentially. Now, th now that suggests to me that you know you probably you know a multi-asset fund can be very very valuable, notwithstanding what you say about the difficulties in managing those funds, Tom. But it can be very valuable if you've got a very particular aim in mind. You know, if you want to if you preserve wealth, um, if you want to reduce your sort of downside risk, a multi-asset fund manager can give you more exposure to one asset class that's inherently safer or less risky or less volatile than another in the mix that you like that you want. It does come at a cost, um, and they can be, relatively speaking, quite expensive funds. You might be better, given that you've got many, many years for the ups and downs of the markets to sort of play out, of just going for broad stock market exposure. An investment trust is a perfectly um, reasonable choice, but this might be a good moment for 
in index funds because mm-hmm. we do know that actively managed funds, uh, even if they can outperform for, for short periods, and Scottish Mortgage has certainly done that not, and has unperformed as well, but um, it's hard for them to do it for 5, 10, 15 years. And actually, over those kind of timescales, index funds probably are a better bet. And, you know, it takes a lot of the admin and decision making out of it as well. Yeah. Uh, do you know what, Ed? That's a much better answer than mine, because you focus on <laughs> you focus on the key part of the question, which is the fact that this uh, that the child is two years old. Uh, uh, absolutely spot on that, you know, actually this this particular investor has the luxury of being able to ride out the ups and downs uh, of the market uh, and can benefit from the historic outperformance of the equity market over a lifetime. So, uh, yeah, I like your answer. <laughs> OK, OK, well, so, um, I'll, I'll take that. We're, we're, we'll move on to our final question for today. Again, we had many questions. Uh, this, this next question, we had many versions of this same question. Um, and we're not, I'll say, a politics podcast, Tom, but uh, we had lots of questions asking, what would be the impact on the UK economy if the policies of the two candidates for Prime Minister prevail? Um, I don't know how granular you want to go into this, and it's uh, changing all the time, but what's a broad answer to that question? Yeah, I mean, I think I think, I think think it is changing all the time. I'm, I think what we can say is that uh, both candidates at the moment, in this relatively early stage of the uh, of the leadership uh, contest, are... Is it, is it really the early stages, Tom? That's a, that's a, a very depressing thought. Uh, <laughs> I think it's I think it's going to go on until September but uh, we may well have a right. we may well have a, a an idea of what the answer is uh, before then but both of them at this stage are talking a lot about uh, tax cuts and that clearly that is going to have a uh, an impact on uh, on the UK economy I think a more interesting question actually is the extent to which for investors which is you know the who we are principally talking to today, as you say, we're not a politics uh, uh, podcast. For investors, I wonder how much it really matters. I mean, as we know that the UK stock market is only tangentially associated really with the the fortunes of the the UK economy. It's a very global um, uh, stock market. It's more influenced by what's going on in the wider world. Um, It clearly does matter the health of the UK economy, particularly for the the lower ends of the UK stock market, the the mid 250 and the small cap indices are more impacted by what's going on in the UK uh, economy. Uh, But I'm not sure how important politics really is in the long run to to investors. No, I think it's a very, very difficult thing to to predict. And and particularly in this sort of uh, campaign where there's lots of sort of competing, you know, tax cuts flying around. I mean, one point to make, I would say, on the, the sort of the, the the political picture and how it perhaps might impact upon the economy. Politicians can control the fiscal side of the argument or the fiscal side. Of, they pull the fiscal levers. That means the tax and spend. That has an effect in the economy that creates or, or reduces demand in the economy. And they obviously have other priorities and, and, and they need to they come up with policies that meet the needs of, of, of people. But um, it's really important, is it not, Tom, that... that the, the fiscal side of the equation when it comes to running the economy is, is pushing in the same way as the monetary side, because we, we have this tremendous challenge with, with inflation. The Bank of England is going to have to sort of apply some dampeners onto the economy, and that might hurt. That might put us into recession, but they're very, very worried about a really ingrained spiral of prices. And if politicians are doing something that pulls in the other way, 
notwithstanding the fact that you know pop tax cuts are popular and people will need and want the money in their pockets it's not a coherent um position for the government to take no that's right fiscal policy and monetary policy obviously work hand in hand and uh you know i think it's fair to say that uh, tax cuts are broadly speaking inflationary. They put more money into people's pockets, which they will go out and spend. That that will be inflationary. So if the politicians are um, implementing policies which are encouraging uh, inflation, then the Bank of England is going to have to work even harder uh, in its battle to get on top of inflation. And that probably means uh, higher interest rates, which will not stimulate the economy in the same way that tax cuts are designed to. So you're right, you know, those two uh, factors can pull in in opposite directions. And there is a lack of coherence to that kind of uh, policy. We we, we shall see, Ed. We shall see. Well, Tom, look, we've answered absolutely loads there. uh, And I'm afraid that is all that we have time for. Tom, thanks so much for your answers today. I'll remind listeners again that the Investment Outlook is available to read at the Markets and Insights section at fidelity.co.uk. There's also a series of videos recorded by Tom that focus on each of the main asset classes. And there's a QA and a video where we answer even more of your questions. That is it for now. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to the Money Talk podcast. Check fidelity.co.uk for daily written updates and articles on these and other topics from across Fidelity in the UK. And subscribe via iTunes to get the podcast downloaded direct to your devices every week. Please note that the value of investments and the income from them can go down as well as up, so you may get back less than you invest. Investors should note that the views expressed may no longer be current and may have already been acted upon. This information is not a personal recommendation for any particular investment. If you are unsure about the suitability of an investment, you should speak to one of Fidelity's advisors or an authorised financial advisor of your choice. Overseas investments will be affected by movements in currency exchange rates and investments in emerging markets can be more volatile than other more developed markets. Reference to the specific securities should not be construed as a recommendation to buy or sell these securities and is included for the purposes of illustration only. Tax treatment depends on individual circumstances and all tax rules may change in the future. Withdrawals from a pension product may not be possible until you reach age 55, 57 from 2028. This podcast may not be reproduced or circulated without prior permission. No statements or representations made in this podcast are legally binding on Fidelity or the recipient. This podcast is meant only for UK residents and does not constitute an offer or a solicitation in any jurisdiction in which it may be unlawful to make such an offer or solicitation.